Would you join me in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3. And I want to read verses 7 through 13, highlighting verse 13 as our critical text this afternoon. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lion coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I did eat. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I did eat. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. The beginning of this narrative in verse 1 gives us a description of the primary character in the text. The writer describes the serpent as a creature who is subtle, crafty, and as some translation says, incredibly cunning. The serpent has an objective, and the objective is to get as close as possible to its potential prey and then allow itself to extract from that prey the life to which brings its existence that it might become food for the snake's longevity. Snake is an interesting creature though. We have been certainly admonished and educated in the Western culture to only maximize the presence in terms of the evil to what the snake brings to us. But a snake is an interesting creature, and I like to highlight the Brazilian pit viper, an interesting snake that's only found in the rain Amazon of Brazil. But like all other venomous snakes, it injects its venom into the prey, and what will happen is that venom will drop the blood pressure of that prey, immobilize by paralyzing the nervous system and creating cardiovascular imbalance, slows the prey down enough where the viper can take possession head first and then begin to consume the creature. 
the paralysis of the nervous system and the ability to reduce its blood pressure makes it a vital candidate for easy prey. What we are not quite made aware of is not only the snake a very venomous creature in the sense that its venom has the potential to kill, but that same venom also holds the potential to preserve life. There are molecules in the snake's venom that actually interacts with the human nervous system and the human cardiovascular system representing the potential opportunity to lessen pain and to relax muscles. This same venom that can kill is the same venom that might save your life. There is a drug called, I think it's called Capopril, Captopril, if I'm not mistaken. It's a drug that we use to treat abnormal high blood pressure. People who have high range of blood pressure numbers take this drug, some 40 million people across the world. What you may not know is that two of the three main drugs we use to treat heart conditions actually have snake venom as its base. The snake bite kills over 100,000 people yearly, yet the same venom preserves life for millions each year. Although the FDA has approved seven different drugs that date to this date that treat hypertension, heart conditions, chronic pain, and even diabetes, that drug have as its base chemical snake venom. Well, the purpose of the venom is to immobilize its prey. But remember, in that venom, there possesses some hundred different types of toxins. And those toxins contain a protein that is used to antiplatent drugs that prevent blood cells from clumping together in our body that keeps us from leading to blood clots that lead to strokes and a heart attack. And some venom is what we call neurotoxin. That means if it gets in your bloodstream, it could very well, more than likely, run to your nervous system to your brain likewise and paralyze it. But then there are others that we call hemotoxic. Gets into the bloodstream and rather than to paralyze, it actually helps those platelets not to create blood clots that will kill us. I think it's interesting when I start learning that because that said to me, on the surface of Genesis 3, what was meant to be defined as evil, God, through the advancement of man's knowledge, has turned it around for the good. And what's amazing about this story is we only maximize the fall of man because of what the snake did in terms of verse 13, deceiving the woman in conversation. But maybe what happens to us 
in verse 7 is not as detrimental as we believe. Maybe the eyes being open is not so bad of a thing. Although they got what they wanted, which was autonomy. That's what Satan sold to them. Autonomy. Get out of the rule, under the thumb, under the control of God. And understand that there's a huge, vast world out there that's waiting on you to come and master it. But you can't get there unless you know the difference between what is good and what is evil. In fact, the snake in its lesson to deceive highlighted that point, made clear that God does not want you to know that lest you will be like God. You'll be able to decide what is good and what is evil and maybe insinuated, not in the text, but insinuated by me, maybe the fear is that you would leave the rule of God and go on to see what's on the other side of the grass. Maybe it is greener on the other side than where you are now. Says verse 7, they got what they wanted, that autonomy. She ate, gave to her husband, their eyes were open, and they now realize they are naked. They got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. Protection from the troubles of the world. The opportunity not to be deceived. The pain, they never knew pain. The frustration and agony of living, they never knew such. What it means to have to provide, it was already provided for them. Everything that they had that was actually for their good, they traded, read further in the text, all because their eyes were satisfied and their desires were fed and quenched by the invitation of the serpent, you will not die. That's what the serpent said in verse 4. You won't die. Instead, you will be open to a whole new world, an adventure otherwise never imagined if you can't see. That story tells us to be careful about who we allow to not only give us words that will say something in our spirit, but that will invite us to really believe that the grass is actually greener on the other side. You may be in a space in your life where it feels like everything is bad and it would be certainly better if I went in another direction and it just may well be. But be careful who you're getting the invitation from. For it could, if it comes from deceptive language and persons like the snake, whose intentionality is merely to inject venom to immobilize you, that you might become easy prey for consumption. On the other hand, their eyes is open and they see now that they are naked and what you have in verse 13 is nothing more than a confession by the woman who honestly responds to God as opposed to the man who actually defers the blame. She says, the snake, the serpent, deceived me. And I did eat. 
In other words, translation, God, I take full responsibility for the condition I now find my life in. It is my fault that I listened to words that were not intended to build me. There was an agenda behind what Satan was saying and I didn't know what that agenda was and Lord, I could very easily blame my husband, Adam, the man whom you gave initially in the first place the responsibility of protecting me and who had the discerning spirit of even naming this creature a snake who was supposed to watch over me and did not intervene. Instead, notice God, when you asked me what have I done, I said I was deceived by the serpent and I yielded to his temptation. But when you asked, oh boy, what happened? He said it was that woman that you gave to be with me. He deflected the blame on me, God. He was not willing to face up to the fact that he is more guiltier than I. I told him this morning, I know what Paul says in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Timothy and what Paul says in Romans 5 when he highlights the fact that it was not the man who was deceived but the woman. And that's where many folk have issues with Paul because that sounds quite patriotical in terms of the sexist mentality. But Paul never highlights, but it was the man to whom God gave the rule in the first place. You can have all that you can in this garden, but don't bother that tree. The admonition of leadership should have rised in his spirit when his wife came and said, Here, taste what I have. No, let's not do that. Because we have an adamant command from God, don't do it. The day that we do, we will surely die. There is a word here in the text that suggests to us that in the woman's confession, she is confessing to the consequence of which her allowing herself to be placed in a condition that rendered her disobedient. She listened and dialogued with the serpent. And as a result, her consequence, that's what verse 8 through 12 is all about. God comes in the cool of the Eden to converse and to ask the question, where are you? As if God didn't already know where you are. Adam says, I heard you when you came. And I ran and hid myself because I was naked. And says the text, once they realized that they were naked, they began to sew fig leaves together that they might create a covering so that God would no longer see their nakedness. <laughs> As if God hadn't already seen that you were naked in the first place. Could it be, as one Scottish theologian says, God purposely set up man and woman in the garden that instead of having them live protected totally by the grace, they now have the experience of appreciating what grace was. You didn't get that. Let me, let me play it plain for you. Now that they are fallen creatures, something has to protect the nakedness of what they are. Read further in the story, God slays an animal and takes the skins 
to cover their nakedness. A typology of indication that later on God would slay and use the skin and the blood that gives it life to create redemption to cover our sin. For that is what God does through the person of Jesus Christ. He covers us with the skin of Christ on the cross. The tree in the garden was meant to give life or death. The tree on the hill was totally meant to give life. And as a result of that now, we have shouting power because rather than the tree and the venom of the snake paralyzing us to immobilize us, it is the tree of Calvary that now gives us life more abundantly and gives us reason to celebrate that we are no longer immobilized, but mobilized by the grace of God. So that now when I read Genesis 3, I'm not sad that I'm a fallen creature, but I listen to the word as it progresses through the centuries and reminds us that when God uses Moses to affirm to him that his grace was sufficient, he tells Moses to take that rod in your hand and throw it to the ground. And Moses throws it to the ground and it turns into a serpent. And then he tells him to go back and pick it up. When he picks it back up, it turns back into a rod. When Israel wanders far away from the grace of God, Moses takes and put a serpent on the end of a rod and lifts it up in the wilderness and informs Israel, everyone who looks up to this serpent on this rod will find forgiveness of their sins. If that's not good enough, the New Testament says, Jesus, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And because Jesus is elevated just as that serpent on that pole, we look onto the hills from which comes our help, and now we find redemption in the image of that which is lifted on the cross. So what was meant for evil in the garden, God has turned it around and used it for good by way of grace and mercy. I wish y'all could understand what I mean by that. Here's what God is saying. Satan's attempt was to wipe us out. But my grace came in to rescue us and restored us. And here's what he says. That's why words that come out of this fountain. Listen, James says sometimes a fountain can give you both sweet water and bitter water. You got to measure people's words. But don't be too quick to disregard them. They might be the very words that bring about your deliverance. Because those words open your eyes, because here's something Satan does. When he comes with deceptive words, he will not engage your consciousness. That means that Satan will not challenge you to think about what's being said. Don't measure whether or not there's a consequence because the grass is always greener beyond where you currently are. You can get what you want. In fact, you deserve to get what you want. You work hard. You have a right to those things that you desire. It is your responsibility to get everything that you want, even if you can't afford to get it. Satan never tells you to think about that. 
Instead, just do it. And reactions generally mean I'm reacting without actually thinking about what I'm attempting to do. Just do it because you deserve to be personally gratified. What Satan doesn't tell you is you can get what you want, but you're going to lose what you had. How many of us have dived into purchasing something that we already knew we didn't have the economics to pay for? And then that note come in the mail and we got to struggle and to try to figure out how we're going to make ends week. We got what we wanted, but we lost what we had, a peace of mind. No burdens on my shoulders. No responsibility to have to wonder how I will make ends meet. Now I have to try to figure out how am I going to get 25 cents out of a penny? Because I got what I wanted. I was satisfied, gratified with my eyes. That's what verse 5 and 6 says, that she looked and she saw that the fruit was beautiful and good. She took it. She believed what the serpent said. She got what she wanted, but she lost what she had. Protected vision. Satan will never engage your consciousness, and Satan will never explain to you consequences. Satan didn't say to Eve, now if you end up tasting this tree, it could be some very detrimental problems for you. Satan never tells the person who tries smoking marijuana, there are some side effects to this. You will get an instantaneous feeling of euphoria. Same thing with heroin. Same thing with cocaine. This is not for people who are spiritual. This is for real people who have real struggles in life, who come to church but are addicts. Taking that drink of Hennessy, one may make you feel good, but before you know you're consuming the whole bottle, you don't know where you are. You don't know who's controlling your life. You don't know who's manipulating or damaging you. You have no clue. You got what you wanted, the gratification of the moment, but you lost what you had. Protection. You got autonomy. Autonomy means I want to be able to make my own decisions, be my own God, be my own somebody. I don't want any control of God at all. In fact, I know more about this thing than God does because I'm here dealing with it every single day. You got what you wanted. But what Satan doesn't tell you is the consequence of what happens when you decide to relinquish God over your life. And you tell God, take a back seat. I got this under control. He doesn't tell you the misery you will experience by not knowing what the next step will bring. You ever been in one of those moments where you get through one thing and it's another, and then you get through that and it's another, and then you get through that and it's another, and you get through that, and you kind of wonder, is the world against me? Is God against me? Was I meant to be this way? Satan never tells you the consequence. 
And then Satan never encouraged you to stand on convictions. If the woman had conversed with the husband, more importantly, if the husband had conversed with the woman about what God said, maybe their convictions would have caused them not to heed to the voice of Satan. There's a reason why the writer in Hebrews says, forsake not thyself the assembling of the brethren. Don't disregard coming around other people who are a part of the kingdom. Translation, church does mean something. Attendance does have a point. Sitting beside somebody else in a pew does have an effect. It gives me a chance to not only see, but to dialogue with someone who may very well have already had the same conversation with evil that I'm currently having. And who can give me insight to remind me first, don't dialogue with evil because you can't win that battle because you will never beat Satan on Satan's ground. You have to always stay under the thumb and the rule and where God is so that God can always have you protected by his grace and mercy and that whenever angels are standing all around you, whenever Satan tries to intervene, there's nothing there but protection for you. But when you leave the protection of God's grace, you are a vulnerable foe, a prey that is a candidate to be immobilized by the snake's venom. And if you ain't careful, it won't take long before you will be consumed by what the snake has done to you. Here it is right here in the text, and then I'm done. Maybe Adam and Eve is trying to tell us two things. One, there's not much you can do about the fall. It's already happened. But now you have the challenge to wrestle with whenever the snake introduces me to an arena that takes me out of God's will. What do I do? Do I react? Which means that I let the snake know I can do what I want to do because God's grace is sufficient and it doesn't matter what I do. God will still love me. Put it to the test. Or do I respond? See, the woman reacts to Satan's invitation. God responds to the consequence to which they have done. But he doesn't, he doesn't kill them. He doesn't ruin them. Read the story further and it says that God drives them out of the garden and never to allow them to re-enter again. Watch this. Sometime God will allow you to be bitten by the snake so that God can take the same venom and bring about your healing. Notice in Genesis 3 and 24, I think it is, it says that God places a flaming, an angel with a flaming sword to keep the way of the tree of life. God says, in essence, I don't want you coming back in here trying to do this again. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to place a protection so that you don't find yourself in the same condition again. I'm so glad that God places protections when I don't want protection but he gives protections to make sure I don't re-enter where he just brought me out before. 
That I don't turn around and go back into the same atmosphere and find myself trying to engage in the same trouble that I've been in before. He places an angel that blocks my path that I can't go back again. Here is the object of this story at this point. How willing are we to admit that we blew it? That perhaps we are where we are because we didn't listen. Here's what Kenneth Matthew says. The woman listened to the serpent. The man listened to the woman. But nobody listened to God. His advice was clear. Do not touch that tree. For the day that you do, you will surely die. You read the story, you'll discover they didn't physically die. But often in the Bible, death doesn't always equate to a physical death. But it does equate to being lonely. In fact, the Hebrew, the Hebrew phrase means they will surely die. It means they will be cut off from the provision and protection of God. That is the reason why they had to be driven out of the garden. Can you imagine that? Not being connected to God from whom all blessings flow. Can you imagine deciding not to any longer worship God? Can you imagine making a choice to heed to the serpent's words instead of God's words? It will change, though, when your posture is parallel from ground to the sky and you are looking for deliverance. Isn't it amazing how we come to know God very quickly? when we're in a posture where we need help. Here's what the story tells us. Be careful whose words you allow to contribute to your life. And be careful that you don't decide that the other side is greener than what you have on this side. Because if you do, you can get what you want, but sometimes in getting it, you realize it's really not what you want, and you can't give it back. You're stuck with it. And sometimes God shuts the door where you can't give it back anyway and makes us work through disobeying what he's told us to do. That's the heart of this text. And the woman who is often the victim of criticism in reference to the fall of man, is actually to me the hero. She was willing enough to say, I was deceived and I did eat. Where the man was willing to say, she did it. She is the reason why I, this would have never happened if you had never given her to me. If you had left her where she was, wherever that was, in the eons of time. But you gave her to me. Not remembering when he woke up out of that deep sleep 
and looked at that woman and said, my God, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now he's crying. It was the one you gave to me. She deceived me in eating of the fruit and giving it to me. And the verses succeeding says, God tells her, you're going to have problems in childbirth, pain. Your, the manner in which you decide to confess, here's your consequence, pain. For you, Adam, you will now forever have to work for your living before I gave it to you. I told you you got what you wanted, but you lost what you had. I gave you everything that you needed in this garden. I gave it to you, but you didn't want my rule. You didn't want to be under me. You didn't want my protection. You wanted to do it all on your own, so go ahead. Now you got to work by the sweat of your brow, and from dust you were created, and dust you shall return. And to make matters even more difficult, the ground will yield thorns and thistles. That means that all across your journey, you will have a painful experience of trying to find employment to supply your needs. When all you had to do was stay in my reign. But in my closing, here's the victorious thing. Even though Adam tried to put off, to blame the first Adam on somebody else. The second Adam picks up and says, the blame stops with me. The second Adam reminds us that although through the first Adam, sin entered for death. Remember what Paul says? For the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin, it'll pay you. It'll give you some wages, and the wage is death. But in the second Adam, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The second Adam came to give us life and gives it to us more abundantly. And although the tree in the garden created a moment in which we fell, the tree on the hill created a moment in which we were uplifted. What Satan meant for evil in the garden, God used for good on the hill. Where Satan tried to deconstruct and destroy, God used to construct and give life at Calvary. For that is the difference. And amazingly, when you get to the revelation of John, this same tree is called the tree of life, where nations all over the world shall find healing in its leaves. Do you know how revolutionized that is? That, that's a way of God telling us that what may have ruined us in the garden ends up giving us life on the hill and in paradise. That's how wonderful this text is. Morning, you what you want, but you might lose what you had. So you can get out of God's will and grace 
and you can get your freedom. But you might lose the discerning presence of God's spirit to tell you when danger is on the rise. Lord, I pray that this morning, this afternoon, rather, that someone finds the strength 